Doug, you know how I'm always uh, saying that I'm going to live forever, right? That, that's my, yep. one of my live goals. Live to be for eternity, yeah. Yeah, and because my my logic recently has been that if you can make it to, uh, you know, 80 or 90, by that point, surely they will have they will have the technology that will get us to, to 200 or 300. And then if you can get there, then, I mean, within just a few years after you're, you know, you're 100 or 150, they're going to have us getting to be 1,000. And then, then, then you don't have to worry about death anymore. <laughs> so... With that in mind, I mean, do you think it's fair for me to say that that the that the supplement that I invented helps you live for eternity? <laughs> Is that, would the FDA you think approve that statement? I mean, I, we probably shouldn't make that claim. <laughs> Maybe we won't make that claim. But the point is, you got to get far enough to uh, you want to be healthy for the long term, so that you have that chance, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, so that is that's one of the reasons why. I invented and co-founded a company that makes uh, this this product called Complement. So, a plant-based diet is a wonderful. No, no, at least you won't find any uh, arguments against that from me. Uh, however, I think if we are smart and honest and looking at the evidence, then there are things that are missing from that diet uh, on its own that don't, you know, make it as good as it could be for living as long as you can and staying healthy. Uh, the ones that most people know about are B12, vitamin D, and DHA and EPA. Uh, which, by the way, are two omega-3 fatty acids. And besides that, there are a few little minerals and things like that. Uh, iodine, zinc, selenium, vitamin K2, uh, those come to mind. As things that vegans probably should be supplementing with, I don't want to say that all should, but people like me who think about this stuff a lot um, often do the research and land on, you know, come to the conclusion that we should be supplementing with those things. So that is um, what, you know, where Complement Plus came from. Uh, it's a, an, a vegan capsule that includes all of those things and doesn't include anything else because, Doug, as you know, I'm not a huge fan of taking multivitamins. We get all this good stuff from our food. Uh, so why would we want to be getting, you know, more vitamin C in our diet than nature really intended for us? So it's those things without all the stuff that you don't need, uh, all in one pill, convenient. And what's great about it is that you can get all that protection for just around a dollar a day. You can get all the details and decide if Compliment Plus is right for you at nomadathlete.com slash smarter. That's nomadathlete.com slash smarter. This episode of Nomad Athlete Radio is brought to you by Aptive. Aptive produces audio-based workouts created by certified personal trainers available through a mobile app. New members get 50% off an annual membership. Visit aptive.com slash nomeat. That's A-A-P-T-I-V dot com slash nomeat. Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Me Athlete Radio. Matt, I don't know if I even told you this, but over the last week we've had uh, Katie's brother, Joe, and his wife staying with us uh, because they've been on a tour of the Asheville area and the you know surrounding towns. They've been coming back here every evening, and I have snuck off and played five rounds of disc golf in the evening over the last week. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and it has been uh, it has been amazing. I gotta say, you know, it's just uh, it's so fun to play to to to, <laughs> to do something that you're not you don't do that often, but you really enjoy, you know. That is the truth. We've talked about disc golf uh, a few times on this podcast, which I guess is probably why you bring that up. As yep, an introductory story. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know what? Disc, disc, it's funny. We talked about the self-improvement thing a while ago. Disc golf, to me, has seemed so frivolous of an activity because <laughs> it has nothing to do with that, right? You're, you're not uh-huh. going to... I mean, I guess, you know, actually, I talked to a guy last night who uh, who was a top-ranked FIFA online soccer player. <laughs> so I was ready to say you can't do 
disc golf professionally, there's no sense in actually improving yourself at that. But I, now that I say that, I'm sure there is a. Uh, oh yeah, there's a there's a there's a PGD TPDGA tour. <laughs> okay, good. So you snuck off and did that, not uh, not on the the hole in your backyard. I'm guessing, right? No, no, we uh, we the actually did a did a tour on. There's you know several courses in the area, and uh, we kind of hit up a bunch of them. Hit up five different or four different courses. Played replayed one oh. twice. Nice. Is that is that a four hour round? Is it the same as like when? when <laughs> no, no it's like an hour and a half. No, it's, it's pretty yeah. quick, about an hour and a half. So we were able to do it because they were gone most of the day, and then would come back, um, and we were able to kind of do it, sneak it in before before it got dark. Mm-hmm. And how many beers are you drinking in, during that hour and a half? You know, on a health podcast, <laughs> I don't really want to admit <laughs> to admit how much beer I've had in the last okay. in the last week. <laughs> okay. All right, that sounds good. Uh, good. Well, the only thing I have had that is the FIFA tidbit. Apparently, some fifteen-year-old just won half a million dollars by being the best <laughs> FIFA player. What <laughs> in a tournament, or is this like I a, think you just are I the think, best, and they give you a half a million? No, I I think esports is a thing. Have you heard of this, Doug? Like, uh, is an e no wait esports? No, I, I, no, I know, yeah, I know. Yeah, I I think it's people playing electronic sports, like playing video games. It's just a better name. Oh, like they go to a tournament and play. I don't even know if you have to go or if you can just play from the comfort of your home. But, <laughs> but esports is a thing. You can bet on it. I think DraftKings, which we also have talked about a little bit in this podcast, I think they were potentially going to start allowing betting on these esports. What? Yeah. And Tony Robbins, I believe, owns a company that has to do with esports. So it's, it's a thing. It's like, wow. It's the next next generation of sporting, I guess. Is Tony Robbins, the self-improvement man, has an esports company? <laughs> yeah. Which, I know. It seems strange. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, esports is a thing. So, there you go. You learned something new today. <laughs> you know, I'd rather I'd rather get outside and play disc golf myself. But you know, more power to you. Yeah, I think I'd rather esports than disc golf. I'd rather <laughs> real golf than esports. Yeah, you know, okay. but but esports golf is actually fun. Uh, you know, I used to like we Tiger Woods golf. I used to get into that. Yeah, I was into Hot Shots. Hot Shots uh, two on PlayStation. That's my <laughs> thing. Okay. So um, anyway. We have an inter- yeah. another interview today. We have an interview. We're starting to starting to line them up and knock them down. We've got a few more still kind of <laughs> in the works. Uh, this one with someone who people know, Ray Cronice, has been on this uh, podcast several times. And someone else who people know who hasn't been on this podcast and who I didn't really know as a person until this, which is Juliana Hever. And she is better known as the plant-based dietitian. Um, she's been around doing this for a long time. She has a very good, strong background and... Uh, I, I just like her attitude and approach to everything. She's she's scientific, um, and at the same time, I don't know, cool, down to earth, easy to talk to. So just just uh, a very good person. I'm glad to have connected with. And she and Ray are actually going to be on the cruise uh, that I'm oh. going to be on next week. So I will get to hang out with them in person. That's, that's fun. Are they doing talks? Or are they attending? They. I'm almost positive that they are there as speakers doing talks. And the reason that they would be doing that is because they have a new book out. Uh, which is the Idiot's Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition. So there's this series that Juliana reminded me on the call, I think, that uh, used to be called the Complete Idiot's Guide, which I thought I'd remember. This is like the the competitor to the Dummies Guides. Mm-hmm. So she wrote the the Complete Idiot's Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition a few years ago, and now they have come back. She has made a second edition of it. They've dropped the Complete, so now it's just for regular idiots, not, not complete idiots. And Ray... Uh, Ray 
she asked Ray to co-author it with her. And he brings this really interesting perspective. Not that hers isn't interesting, but I think, you know, as I say in the interview, like when you, when you think of the Idiot's Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition, you kind of expect you're going to get the basic standard stuff. Right. But Ray has never seemed like someone to give the basic standard stuff you know, <laughs> in her study. He has just different ideas that, you know, not at all to, to uh, what's the word here? To, to <laughs> I don't have a word for this. Not at all to <laughs> say they're, they're bad, crazy ideas. He's just, he's a scientist. He's someone who, he's a, you know, he comes up with stuff and tests it. And, and a lot of that gets you stuff that is not mainstream. So um, anyway, very, very interesting approach, I think, to writing an idiot's guide. And uh the interview reflects that. We talk about a lot of really, really cool stuff, um, including things like why they've stopped defending the adequacy of vegan diets, uh, overnutrition versus undernutrition. And Ray, if you've listened to his stuff before, his big thing is that we just eat too much. We just eat all the time. And even people eating plant-based diets eat too much because of this social framework that we have. Um, way, way more than like, you know, we're really designed to eat because there's no more scarcity of food anymore, ever. So... Talk about all that stuff, kind of. Of course, we talk about vegan junk food. Uh, we talk, you know, just about kind of basic guidelines, like what what is there besides just eat whole plants, and uh, just a very good, interesting conversation as always. And uh, you know, had a good time with it. That's oh, and great. by the way, and they used uh, a couple of recipes from me in in the in the book. I should mention that as well. Ah, yeah. So this is like a the idiot's guide. So it's a, like a like a series, like the for dummies says. Yes, exactly. You don't know the Idiot's Guide series, Doug? The, those orange so. books? I think the big yellow... Yellow's the dummies. Books. Okay. Right. Oh, oh you I... know what? I can picture that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. That's cool that they did a plant-based version of them. Yeah, totally. And that's and that's another thing we talked about in this call. I mean, it's, it's very interesting to me that, that... You know, it's great to see that reaching this mainstream audience. Because you right, think of that sure. as a mainstream publication if ever there was one. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's very good. Right next to the Idiot's Guide to Windows 95. Exactly. Idiot's Guide to WordPress. Idiot's Guide to uh, Lean Six Sigma <laughs> Management Strategy. <laughs> uh, Idiot's Guide to Chess, Home Brewing, uh-huh. Beer. These are all Idiot's Guides that I've checked out. Disc Golf, maybe? I don't know. Disc Golf? I would not be surprised if there was if there was one. No, probably not. I don't know if Disc Golf is as mainstream as the plant-based diet, but... I don't know. I know. Actually, it's probably a pretty fair comparison to make. Yeah, okay. All right, good. So uh, I don't think there's anything else to really get into here, Doug. And The the interview's long, so let's not waste time here. Just get to it, and uh, we'll talk to everyone soon. Sounds great. Hey, everyone. Matt here with two friends of mine, Juliana Hever and... Raymond Cronice, as it says on the cover of the new book, authors of Plant-Based Nutrition. I keep wanting to call it The Idiot's Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition, but I don't know if that's the official title anymore. Is it now just Idiot's Guide colon Plant-Based Nutrition? Well, originally it was The Complete Idiot's Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition, but somehow they took out the complete, and now it's Plant-Based Nutrition, and then in parentheses is The Idiot's Guide. <laughs> so it's kind of confusing. Yeah, that uh, that was my, my recollection, was that it used to be The Complete Idiot's Guide, but uh, whatever. Marketing, right? Yes. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, so this is actually the second edition of the book. And if I'm not mistaken, Juliana, you wrote the first, uh, first edition by yourself, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. And how, when was that? So it published in 2011. 
And uh, they, it's so funny because I was just thinking about it recently and I was like, gosh, I really want to do an update. It's, there's so much has changed in the last almost 10 years. It had been, you know, gearing close to 10 years. And I actually talked to Ray about that and we were talking about, yeah, we should do a proposal for that. And quite literally a week later, the agent that I worked with on the book wrote me and said that the the publishers wanted to do a second version. So it was kind of perfect timing. It was me- meant to be. And I asked Ray to join me as a co-author because we had been working together over the past year. And I thought his message and my message together had a completely different synergy. And we can completely revise and renovate and make this a really whole new exciting book. Yeah, you know, when I when I heard that Ray was involved in this project, I, I had the same thought about it. Like to me, uh, Idiot's Guides, right? It's it's meant for a, a very, I guess, sort of a mass market mainstream audience. And it's great that we're getting this message to a mainstream audience. Uh, Ray's message has always struck me as like not the mainstream message, right? Like he's he's a super, super scientific uh, guy who's on board with the plant-based diet and has a lot of like just sort of out there advice that I think makes his episodes really entertaining because they're coming from someone uh, who, who, you know, I certainly respect as a scientist. Uh, so I think it's a really, really interesting mix. I'm, I'm just curious to, uh, to hear how it all worked, which of course we'll, we'll get into. Um, so what, what is new in this one? Why, why a new one? I mean, obviously we've come a long way in, in whatever, seven, eight years now. Uh, I know it's come, that's about how long I've been doing No Meat Athlete and it has changed tremendously since then though, just the whole plant-based, uh, environment. Uh, but why, why a new one? And, uh, what's, what's new in this one? Yeah, so much has changed. You know, so much evidence has built up in the literature, in the scientific literature. And, you know, there's just so much more evidence. And the stuff that was really interesting about Ray's work, because he had been focusing, you know, on health span and longevity. And, you know, I have quite literally for 12 and a half years, I've been defending the nutritional adequacy of a plant-based diet. And what was interesting about Ray's work and what we kind of put together and sewn together and, and, and peppered it throughout this book is the idea that perhaps one of the reasons a plant-based diet is so effective in terms of reducing age-related chronic disease, in terms of helping sustain weight loss, all of that is because of the very nutrients that it happens to be low in or naturally kind of restrictive. So it's kind of actually instead of defending, oh yeah, we can get enough, we can enough, perhaps we're getting even better amounts of all of the nutrition by eating a plant-based diet. So it was kind of a really neat new conclusion, and it's a new attitude towards how we teach eating plants. Yeah, so I'd like to expand on that, actually. I know uh, we talked about one of the topics bringing up here was was this this decision to no longer defend the adequacy of vegan diets. Uh, can you can you go into that more? I just, I'm just really curious. Uh, I know in the book you talk about it's not it's not what we eat, perhaps, but what we don't eat. And uh, I'm sorry, it's not what we don't eat, it's what we do eat. So I'm just really curious to hear, um, you know, what, what that whole perspective is and how that, how that kind of drove the content of the book. Yeah, one of the main things is that people are so concerned about protein. And this happens across the board, not just a plant-based diet, I've learned. It just even in the dietetic circles, dietitians everywhere, doctors everywhere are worried about protein. And what I've learned and with working with Ray and when looking in the health span and longevity research is that the only way we've ever extended lifespan and reduced age-related chronic diseases in every organism from yeast to primates is especially by dietary restriction 
most specifically of the essential amino acids. So a plant-based diet is adequate, not only adequate in essential amino acids and proteins, you can get plenty of that, we could talk about that, but what it does restrict are some of those essential amino acids that promote chronic diseases. So that's just one of the examples where it is a naturally restrictive um, setup in what the constituents of a plant-based diet are that happens to be beneficial. Okay, so when you talk about then the, the decision not to defend the adequacy, you're saying we're no longer going to try to argue for how much is how much this diet gives you. We're just going to say that by its nature, it kind of forces you to, at least it used to before the rise of the vegan junk food came about, which we can get into in a yes. bit, but that it used to sort of automatically restrict calories for you and therefore, as far as health span and lifespan goes, uh, is a, is a you know, pretty reasonable choice to consider. Yes, because you're eating more volume, you're eating lots, you're eating plenty of food, but you naturally will get lower calories. But you'll this- naturally get lower essential amino acids. You'll naturally get a better form of iron that doesn't have implications for long-term health damage. Like all of a lot of different nutrients that are in that that are just naturally included in a whole food plant-based diet. The fact that they're they have actually the right levels, the perfect amount. But this is the this is the key because the calories are is part of the you know word problem that the physics professor put on the test to confuse you. That really has nothing to do with it. Calories, calorie restriction, calorie you know historically doing calorie restriction tracked with dietary restriction. But we are way beyond that. That was eighty years ago, and we've we have advanced. And what we've learned is that it's that as we restricted quote unquote calories, we were also restricting a lot of other nutrition. And here's where the flip is. While everybody might be quick to jump jump to vegan junk food, and we can get into that later because I, I definitely agree. And Juliana and I have been talking about this whole uh, conundrum with vegan junk food explosion. But even vegan health food, this idea that you have to swallow, swallow, swallow and get all these nutrients and all these great things that are going to heal our body and nutrient, 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 or as you and I've talked, Matt, uh, just the whole idea of all the ex- uh, uh, excessive amino acids in the diet. This is what uh, we started talking about originally. The fact is, is that right now we're really at the precipice of this concept where people are going to take um, the you know the the distribution of amino acids that happen to be in plants that seem to be favorable for health span and longevity and then fortify them just like we fortified a lot of other foods to make them behave just like all the other animal products you know this idea that there is something very distinguished between plant proteins and animal proteins you know when you think about it we don't use a protein now there are some exceptions for example whey and casein are hormonally active those are those are in human breast milk and cow breast milk etc so we know that there are parts of those fragments that activate and we and we know a little bit about how that happens but ultimately all proteins plural and there's you know that you know the average cell has 10 to 15,000 different proteins plural in it all of those proteins are just basically sources of amino acids and of those 20 amino acids that make up every protein and we've talked about this on the um, past podcasts you know only nine or eight or nine of them are the ones that are these essential amino acids that you only get from diet but it turns out for example one of those methionine for example methionine actually you know promotes the growth of of certain cancers like breast and prostate cancer so you know if we take breast cancer cells and then we take breast tissue cells and we put them in a petri dish and we restrict methionine the breast cancer cells will die they have absolute methionine dependency 
And so where do we find lots of methionine? We find it in fish. We find it in eggs. We find it in chicken. So it may be that this rise of, of quote-unquote animal protein that we talk about in the plant-based diet is actually more associated with a deluge of these essential amino acids, which are great when you're younger in life, but later in life cause after evolution is done with you cause or could be contributing to the rise in chronic disease. So this idea that diet is a monolithic throughout your lifespan is one problem. Second problem is that that we all want to think and this really throw this back to you know Juliana in terms of the, you know what she learned as you know going in, in her masters in nutrition it was all dependent on deficiency. What are we deficient in? We're deficient in this, we're deficient in that. You might say some more about that, Juliana. Yeah, really, it was about avoiding deficiency. The whole paradigm of nutrition education, not only in dietetic school, nutrition school, but also in medical school. Everything. The only thing they teach in medical school right now is how to avoid deficiency. So, you know, we're coming out of, you know, avoiding scurvy and finding out about vitamin C and avoiding iodine deficiency, you know, with, with goiters and, and iodizing salt. And we've seen this throughout history, but it has become literally the the center of what we talk about in nutrition. If you look at all the nutrition books, it's about how to get all these nutrients, how to avoid deficiency. And that's what's so, I guess, groundbreaking and different about my message now working with Ray is actually we're doing just okay as long as we're eating the right foods. I mean, I'm not saying that it's, it can't be a problem, but for the majority of people, we're chronically overnourished and we're getting too much. And the focus of trying to get enough is part of the problem. Yeah. So, I mean, that's exactly what I was referring to in the beginning of this, uh, of this interview. when when I mentioned that just, you know, the, having Ray on board that you, you kind of get this different sense. Like, I don't think when someone hears idiot's guide to plant-based nutrition, they would expect that this sort of, and I know this isn't exactly what you guys are diving into the entire book because you, you got to get all the other stuff in there too. But like, this is, you know, this is not what's in the typical, you know, here's how to do a plant-based diet book. So I think that's really, really interesting that, that, uh, this, this kind of content is in such a, a mainstream book. So, um, that's all really interesting to me. Um, I'm, I'm curious, what's the, like, what is the conclusion other than go by the book? What, like to, to the, this question of like what's happening, you said, great, because Ray, you said not just junk food, it's also the plant-based health food, but it's just where we're kind of engineering food in general. What is the answer? I mean, you talked about the idea of eating differently in different stages of life, um, but other than that, or if you want to expand on that, that's fine too. Yep. Like what's, what is the solution? Is it just eat whole foods or can we somehow do better than that and sort of outsmart nature some way? Oh yeah. yeah no, so we Oh, go ahead, Ray. Yeah, so let's go ahead. So let's go ahead and expand on this idea of food throughout life. Um, and it, it, this is a story. It's a. It's sort of a just so story. It's not hard science, but it's reasonable. And that is, you know, it take. You know, if you think about it, we can eat almost anything and make it to reproductive age of about fifteen or so. And we can eat almost anything and make it the fifteen to twenty years that are reproductive prime. And then we can eat anything, you know, still and make it an additional 15 to raise our youngest offspring. So evolution and genes and passing on, if people want to think about a paleo diet, which is what brought us together originally, this idea of an evolutionary diet, somewhere <laughs> around, we, ate it. We, we talked about it. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere <laughs> around, yeah, but somewhere around 45 to 50 years, evolution is done with us. And if we think about all the diseases we're trying to avoid or prevent, all of those happen after reproductive prime is over when evolution is done. 
So so the idea that, you know, it's not it's not surprising that humans can eat, you know, we've we are adaptable and we can live in all kinds of environments and eat all kinds of food. This idea that we're designed to eat one thing is a myth. We can eat many things and survive. The problem is is not all of them will be as sort of, you know, as um helpful in the earlier stages of life as they will be in the end of life. So, you know, a, a child that's growing doesn't have a problem with excess IGF-1 or growth hormone or insulin, you know, that they in fact need those things and are people that have stunted, you know, versions of those that, you know, never grow. But later in life when growing is over and you have IGF-1 and growth hormone and excess insulin, then those things can lead to the growth of cancerous tumors, for example. So, so the point is, is that we need to think about our diet sort of in a long term. Now, how does this affect plant-based diet? I want to go right back to what Juliana said in the beginning, which is the very first cut at all this was sort of to compare diets. I mean, there's not a manual anywhere on a cave or you know a block on you know chiseled in a block on a mountain somewhere of exactly how humans should eat. We can eat a lot of things, and so what we've you know, pretty much done over the last century is, you know, analyzed what we were eating and sort of said, this is sort of biological normal. And we create standards and committees and all these other things. But the truth is, is that we can actually get by on a lot less food from a, from a pure biological sense than we do, than we need from a social sense. Meaning, you know, one of the things that we do is we divide the social idea of eating, which is having friends with friends and family and bringing a dish to the game, you know, party or whatever, from the idea of what do you need to survive and reproduce. And so what, what Julian and I, the initial where she and I came together was this concept that protein, carbs, and fat aren't food groups. And so we had introduced a concept called the food triangle, which separates foods in sort of a different way. We've talked about that in the past, but Juliana and I have really now focused and taken it to the next level um, from the idea that, you know, really we need to get back to talking about whole foods and not being so worried about all of the micronutrition. You know, we cover some of the micronutrition, you know, we cover the micronutrition from a plant-based diet in the book, but from the bigger picture, this gets back to her deficiency model. Most people aren't going to die of a chronic disease and be deficient when they're laying there on the gurney. They're not going to be deficient in anything. They're not going to be deficient in amino acids. They're not going to be deficient in vitamin D. They're not going to be deficient in most things. That's not to say that people might not be lower and that there aren't some benefits to supplementing certain ones. B12, for example, when we get into all that for specific for vegans, I definitely want us to go through that list. But the point I'm making is, is this idea that we have to be swallowing from the time we wake up in the morning to the time we go to bed and that if we skip a meal or skip two meals or even skip a day that somehow we're going to go into nutritional shutdown that's sort of the new that's the disruptive crazy thing that you're talking about because i feel like we've really taken that to the next level right and the question then becomes like you asked matt is well what what is optimal not what you know what can we get away with what you know what did we get away with but what should we be eating and what you know what i had on my cover of my first book was the food triangle uh food pyramid. And then, you know, the USDA changed it and it became a food um, plate. So I had that. 
But what's really exciting about this book is that I've integrated the food triangle. And this was what was so exciting about working with Ray because it eliminates the need, like we don't have to talk about carbs, proteins, and fat anymore. As I mean, we do. We go into deep dive into that into the book. But carbs, protein, people are so confused. We call it macro confusion. People are so confused about what to eat because they're looking at, you know, people are afraid of carbs or people are looking for more protein. And people don't even really know what those things are. Those are not food groups. Those are macronutrients. So this food triangle is the new tool that Ray introduced me to and I'm loving using because instead of dealing with all that stuff and all of the all of the confusion out there, it's dealing with whole foods. And it also is a way of explaining why people can lose weight on a paleo diet. They can lose weight on a, you know, keto diet and a Mediterranean diet can be healthy and a vegan diet can be healthy. Or when you add the adulterants, the flour, sugar, salt, and oil, people may not be as healthy. And I'm seeing clients come to me now that have the same health problems as do my meat eating clients because of even on a vegan diet because of those adulterants so it's a really neat tool and um i recommend we advise you know it's in the book i think it's page 60 or 70 um, but we go into explaining how you could use it because it explains how food works and how it, it's a great tool to look at food from a different perspective cool and we've talked about that uh in a past episode. I know Randy, you and I did an episode that I think was all about the food triangle. Um, so it's actually really great to hear that that's in a, in a book like this. Cause I know we've, we've talked Ray about, I think we even considered putting it in, uh, in the Nomi cookbook. And I said, ah, I just don't know if we can introduce like this totally new right. stuff in this. So I think it's amazing that you guys have managed to do that here. And uh, so that's and the idea, you know, you're, you're a crackpot till you hit the jackpot. So all that out there stuff, you know, everything that you're using now in common man, you know, like, you know, for example, all the books from Eustace von Liebig in 1842 that I have here that I've been using for my research in 1842, the idea of protein, carbs, and fat was out there. So, you know, and before that, the idea that oxygen, that respiration and combustion were the same thing with Lavoisier was out there. And so the idea here is that, you know, we've moved this in. I think that the more people use the food triangle to design their diet, I think the less confused they'll become. We really don't need to know all these biochemistry terms. The body is way more smart than that. It, it, you don't manage your biology by swallowing. If you think that that's the truth, then you're missing something. Your body, you know, even in during long-term fasts does just fine without your help. You have to have sources of nutrition, but nutrition's not an emergency. And so I think by getting the food triangle and oxidative priority and some and breaking some of the metabolism myths in an idiot's guide, we can get that out to the common language where more people are using it and not have it just stuffed away in a paper. Because quite frankly, I don't think academia is going to just jump on this it 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 right and what's whole... so great about this platform of it being an idiot's guide is that we really did simplify it and make it usable like we have you know chapters for across the lifespan you know from pregnancy and infancy to seniors and athletes and um, it, it the whole point is that you can apply all of this information in a very practical way and it actually makes eating and choosing what to eat much easier you know people are so confused about oh i want to eat plant-based what does that mean what am i supposed to eat and so i think that's what's so neat about putting like um, translating all of this deep science stuff into real practical tips that that this book gave us the opportunity to do. Yeah, so actually a nice segue because I was reading the foreword which uh, Penn Jillette wrote, and for those who don't know, Ray helped Penn lose a tremendous amount of weight. I don't know what was it, a hundred pounds, Ray? Yep, hundred hundred pounds. Yeah, so he, it, it was writes... it was a little bit little bit more, but he won't give me credit for all of it. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, he writes in there here first. He was Cray Ray, which uh, which I believe I've heard from him before, but I don't I don't know where that comes from or what that means. Um, but he talks about he says I think he makes a joke that says something like that if if this wasn't the idiots guide if it was just the smart people guide to this then all it really need to say is is eat more plants if it was a smart person's guide to you know general nutrition they, all it need to say is eat more plants so in writing this in writing this for you know for a mainstream audience but clearly wanting also to educate people who maybe already think they know everything there is to know about plant based nutrition in this old paradigm what else is there to say like like did you kind of come across any insights in the in the task of needing to simplify what can be a really, really complicated scientific message. Um, you know, you've already mentioned metabolism and, and that just even thinking about that starts to get into, I think, sends people into a lot of reductionist sort of thinking. So in trying to clarify that message and really streamline it, um, what else is there to know besides eat more plants? Like what, what are the things, what are the takeaways that someone listening to this, reading the book that you know, that you can get without reading an entire book. And obviously I hope people will still check out the book, but like, I'm just wondering, what did you, what did you learn in the process of writing this as far as taking this message, uh, a complicated message maybe to a mainstream audience? There are a lot, but one of the things, I mean, to really make a plant-based diet super simple, and this is what I kind of work with with, when I see clients uh, around the world, you know, with health problems or just wanting to transition to a plant-based diet, is that, you know, you have a lot of choices, and I recommend prioritizing the most health-promoting nutrient-dense foods. So making sure every day you're getting your leafy greens in, every day you're doing cruciferous vegetables and other colored vegetables and fruits and legumes every day and some nuts and seeds every day, and we kind of portion it out based based on what the research says, but that, you know, if you prioritize that, um, you'll end up having a core, like a mission every day on what you should try to get into your diet. And like we say, nutrition is not an emergency, so it doesn't have to be perfect, which is kind of a relief for a lot of people. It doesn't have to be so like measured and, 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 you know, calculated and all that. It really can be more simple, but things like just eating, you know, eating soups, batch cooking, making salads every day, and just, just like really easy ways to make sure you're getting those most important foods, because that's where you're going to find the majority of the micronutrients that we need, that everyone needs, the essential nutrients. You're you're going to get the right amount of, you know, the even just the right amount of macronutrients. You'll get your healthy fats. You know, you'll prioritize the healthy fats by choosing these foods. You'll get the amino acids that you need. And so more of instead of going into, we do talk about carbs, protein, and fat, but really it's better to, we want to focus on foods. And I think that's what makes it more simple for people instead of being overwhelmed with trying to calculate and worry about numbers. So yeah, let me translate what she just said to the food triangle. And that is that the most of your plate should come from the top of the food triangle. And if you look at it uh, in the book or online or Google it, um, it's cruciferous greens, mushrooms, bulbs, um, you know, stems like uh, asparagus, celery, those kinds of things, leafy greens. And then as you go down one descending side, the right descending side, you know, we say keep eating right, you're going to increase the the energy density of the food, meaning this is where your legumes are, this is where your starchy vegetables are, this is where your fruits are, and it's also where your nuts and seeds are. So what you'll do is just eat, if you eat primarily from the top of the food triangle, most of your meals, and that add just enough food at the bottom right um, to have enough energy, you'll get what you need. I mean, you don't you don't have to mix and match. You don't have to plan carefully. You just look and eat on the food triangle. Don't need to know any of those words. I mean, 
we managed to get through e- eons or you know millennia of you know where we didn't have directions on food and we just ate stuff and we seemed to do fine. That said, there are some nutrients, some notable nutrients that everyone does need to be aware of, and this is this is not really changed in from the first edition to the second edition. Only we have more data. I mean, you know, we're seeing vegans, a lot of vegans having vitamin B twelve deficiency because they're relying on fortified foods or they're just thinking that they're going to get it naturally because they're concerned about that. Um, so we talk about. B12. We talk about, you know, the potential for iodine and selenium to slip away and how to incorporate that. Um, Vitamin D, how that's kind of a global type of problem, uh, not exclusive to a plant-based diet. So we have recommendations on vitamin D. And so we've kind of, we make recommendations on supplements and nutrients because there are, I call them notable nutrients that people do need to be aware of um, on top of even if you're eating a perfect diet, because there is really no such thing as a perfect diet. But, but yeah, let's go back to that because, again, if you eat from the food triangle, you're going to do a, the best you can with whole food. There is a very short list. It's a very it's, – we give the list. It's, you know, in terms of the vitamins and nutrition, you, you need to be taking B12. I don't care who you are. You need if – you're, if you're over 60, you definitely need to be taking it. If you're, if you're plant-based, you should be taking it, period. You should probably be taking D, D3. You should probably be taking K2. You should be taking um, zinc and iodine because those are are two that can slip away. Especially people go to Himalayan and all kinds of natural salt, and iodized salt was one of the you know first the places where we got rid got enough iodine in our diet. So not having that because we don't recommend you know all the external salt. The uh, so the idea if you're not adulterating with that salt, you you could be deficient. And then you know when you come down to a DHA EPA or the other ones that. You know, um, the jury's still out, but there's really no harm in doing those things. When you look at the list, the list for a plant-based diet is relatively small for for supplements, but the idea that you're going to mix and match quote-unquote natural food is is really, that is not science. That's that's just made up myth. You know, you don't have to source everything from natural food in terms of that. You can supplement things that are going to be limited in your diet. And I think what you're ending up doing is limiting some of the other things, like we were talking about methionine or saturated fat or heme iron or some of the things. And we talk about these, you're limiting those for pur- on purpose. And the foods that naturally would have given you these other things, naturally, again, is the operative word here. Aren't, are no longer in your diet, and it doesn't matter if you supplement those. The idea that you know supplement is artificial is equal to bad isn't necessarily the case, and I think this is an important point to bring out. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I was going to ask you about that, sort of the philosophical objection that comes up when you start talking about plant-based diets and supplements. I mean, the, the picture you painted before this, which was that we don't need to worry about our nutrition, we, you know, we're mostly we're, we're, we're more likely to be overnourished and undernourished, uh, you know, it's, it just sounds slightly inconsistent with the idea like, oh, by the way, you also need to supplement these three to five things. Um, what, what else? I mean, what, what is your, you kind of gave it there, but I'm just like, what, if someone says that to you, what, what's the, what's the short response to that? Well, I mean, that's the difference. There's a difference between macronutrients and micronutrients and macronutrients where people are like trying so hard to get more protein, more protein, more protein is just that's where you run into trouble because then you're eating more quantity. But the whole idea that there's this perfect diet and you don't need to have any supplements, it's just not real world. I mean, every diet has some kind of something missing and you can't eat, you know, just there's just certain nutrients like B12 where you just have to address them. So nothing's perfect. This, we believe, is the most health promoting diet there is the research 
absolutely supports that, you know, at least what we have now, uh, that there's no better way to eat when you're just, when you're restricting animal products and you're aiming for whole foods, but nothing is perfect. And there are certain micronutrients that we just need to be aware of just to make sure. Right. And so back to the question with Matt more specifically is you said, what is the apparent, what is the contradiction? Why is there a contradiction? And that's because I said, you know, what we started with, we can eat a lot of things and make it through our evolutionary journey, which is get to reproductive prime, mate, have offspring and raise them. What we've learned in health span research on one hand is dietary restriction of certain, certain nutrients. And so I'm not even going to get into macro and micro, but certain nutrients, certain nutrition is naturally restricted. And what we also find to those organisms is that when they restrict their diet, they aren't as reproductive. I mean, and I've talked about this before, that they are less fecund or, you know, fecundity goes down, but longevity goes up. So there seems to be this idea that, you know, in, you know, biology preserves you for a, a future day when food is more plentiful to reproduce. So when you say there's this, you know, when you note that there's this apparent contradiction, the reason why there's apparent contradiction, I mean, let's just take B12, for example, you know, on one hand, B12 is certainly available in, in you know, in lots of seafood. It's in, it's in organ meats because that's where we store ours or whatever. And there would be a lot of people say, we need to eat this so that we can get B12. Well, but, we're yeah. also, but also, if you go back in history, you know, you could be drinking from streams and not sterilizing your produce and get that B12. But because yeah, but of even, the context even if of where it, we yeah, are. But even if it doesn't matter one way or the other how we get it. The answer is, is that is B12 is ubiquitous in animal food. Okay? So... And and we ate animal food throughout our evolutionary past and probably and the fact that we store it long enough is fine you know unlike carnivores we didn't stop you know we didn't stop producing vitamin c because we eat fruit and so we've you know we you know we stop producing vitamin c carnivores do produce vitamin c they don't need to eat fruit so my point is is that this idea of worrying about food and trying to put us into a into a box when humans survival has been based on the fact that we can survive on a lot of things and so the point here is if you're going to eliminate organ meat which eliminates heme iron which eliminates saturated fat which eliminates excess essential amino acids in a diet all things that are beneficial then you need to find this B12 source. And so this the concept that we actually understand how the body works better today and that we know what a B12 deficiency looks like, that we know how to measure it, that we know that we can supplement it relatively easy, um, that we can that we can synthesize it. And the synthesized version, you know, there's several different versions, but the synthesized version works the same as the other one. We won't get the disease of deficiency of B12. This is the important point. We are smart enough today to be able to have that list. And again, that list is really small. It's B12, D3, K2, zinc, iodine, EPA, and DHA. That's really it. And selenium. The, and, and Well, selenium you can get with Brazil nuts, Brazil nuts. If, if you wanted to. So selenium is something people can become deficient in, but it's not deficient in a plant-based diet in any way. I mean, you can get those easily. So Most people it, don't. When, it's not so easy to get Brazil nuts. It is an option, but I'm just saying that people do need to be aware if they don't have they it. Need to they're be expensive aware of, too, yeah. Right, but they'll be aware of them. But, but I'm just saying that you, you're you not going to get B12 in a plant-based diet unless you supplement. You know, I mean, it's in, or it's fortified food. But then if you're fortifying food, well then, you know, if you're fortifying food, then, you know, it's the same as supplementing anyway. And so you actually know what you're getting and you know what you're doing instead of randomly trying to mix and match fortified food. So the idea here... 
is go to the produce section and shop. You know, nothing, nothing needs an expiration date because you know what rotten food looks like and tastes like and you don't eat it. So you don't need an expiration date on whole food produce. Um, you, 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 you put that in your basket, you eat it. And if you eat enough that you're not losing weight, um, then you're getting enough food. And then you've got a small handful of things that you need to supplement through. This is, this is the simple side. And the idea that you need to take excesses of all these supplements that you need this entire, you know, bottle, you know, all these bottles lining the counter is, is just really, you know, it's it's just marketing. It's it's the same kind of marketing that started, you know, protein, carbs, and fat as as marketing labels. Ray, you just said with uh, you said that if you're not losing weight, then then you know you know you're eating enough and you're not gonna. Well, I mean, deficiency whole other topic we just talked about and some of those supplement things you need to supplement. But you know, in general, you said if if you're not losing weight, then you're eating enough. Can we say the same for kids? I mean, you mentioned that that kids don't have the same. Uh, or perhaps it's not as risky for children to, and maybe even beneficial for them to be, you know, having their bodies produce IGF one, uh, getting some of these foods that are that maybe look more like animal products or even are animal products. Um, what is a parent on a plant based diet? And I know you guys touched on this in the book, but a parent who's giving their kid a plant based diet or their kids a plant based diet, um, you know, we need a different criterion than just the kid isn't losing weight and the kid is appearing to grow. Or, or do we? Or is that enough? Like if the kid is growing, can we say then this diet therefore is adequate for a child? I mean, it is adequate for a child. There is a way to do it. You do need to be thoughtful about it because it is a child. But I mean, as Ray was saying, you can get away with a lot in your childhood. And most children, the problem with most children in general is that they're so picky and it's hard to get them to eat a wide variety of health-promoting foods for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can absolutely raise a child healthfully their entire life on plants. And I do when I see clients, because I work with families all the time for this. I work with children and their parents to, to make sure that everything everyone's getting what they need. I do look at growth curves, just like their doctors do, their pediatricians are tracking their growth curve. And that's always a warning sign if they drop off their curve, if they start going down or if they start going up, then we have to analyze and see what's going on. But if they, I mean, that is just a general way to look at children's healthy growth and make sure that they stay on track with their uh, their growth curve and also energy, le- you know, make sure they're not getting all of a sudden lethargic or, you know, that they're having problems concentrating. I mean, you'll know, you know, your children and you watch, but those are the two biggest things that I look for is maintain staying on the growth curve. And the thing is that when children are hungry or when, you know, they, children are actually much better at regulating at self-regulating intake, much more so than us adults who have, we've learned all this stuff and become kind of jaded with how much we consume and how much we should consume and when we should eat and what we should eat. But kids really know, like they're, when they're hungry, they eat. And when they're full, they don't, they stop much more naturally. And then until they're conditioned to do otherwise. Um, but just like what we talk about with athletes, and we have a whole chapter in the book on raising children from all their whole, um, the whole lifespan. But same with athletes is that if they are eating more because they're hungrier or they're going through the growth spurt or preparing for a growth spurt, you know, and their appetite will naturally increase, then they're just, if they're eating more of the right foods, which is what we're trying to provide them with, then they're going to get what they need and they'll grow accordingly. So watching their growth is perfect, you know, and eating the same health promoting foods. So trying to stay away from all the processed foods. But I mean, most kids are dealing, I mean, my kids included are dealing with an onslaught of candies and junk food and fast food and pizzas and parties at school 
school and parties with their friends and all this junk food. So if you could rein it in at home and provide them with a nice, you know, let them learn how to love vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, herbs, and spices and grow up into that, then they'll be able, they can use that to eat enough to grow healthfully. And you know, when they're more active, they're going to have a natural increase in appetite. But it's actually really quite easy. I do because so many of my clients that are children are picky and don't really want to eat all that broccoli or, you know, they have a harder time with that. Then I do recommend just a multi, a nice gentle multi just to cover their bases and and just to monitor the growth curve. But you could absolutely sustain a healthy diet for children, raise them all the way, big Huge kids, you know, athletes and everything. I know lifelong vegans that have have successfully done that. Yeah, and and back to the children. So you start with a, the fact that children, the only limit a child has on a plant based diet is that they have less volume food. So the reason why children were starving at very great numbers at the turn of the, you know, from the turn of the nineteenth to the twentieth century is because the kinds of foods, the staple foods, rice, potato, et cetera, are, it, you need a lot of food to be, eat a lot of them to be able to sustain your calories. So, you know, there's a whole, if, if people want to Google, there's a paper out there called the protein fiasco that was part of, you know, a, a sort of one of its, uh, a McLaren is the name, is the author, but it describes how we got into this po- protein centric craze. And it started with children. Children were, you know, having, you know, this quashiocores and they thought that quashiocores was a protein deficient disease. It turns out that it wasn't, just that excess protein minim- minim- it, it takes care of the symptoms. But without going into the details, the problem is, is that when people, when children are getting enough calories, for example, just with that specific issue of protein, when they're getting enough calories and they're not coming from oil and sugar, this is, we're talking about whole foods. So everything Juliana and I are talking about is when we say getting enough food, we're talking about stuff that's on the food triangle, not olive oil, not sugar, not Coca-Cola, not even orange juice, you know, that we're getting whole foods. Um, if you're getting enough calories from food, you're getting a lot, uh, most of what you need from a nutritional perspective. But the comment that I made was about weight, uh, if you're not losing weight, I was really gearing towards adults. So without complicating this with children, because th- there's a lot of other issues. And like Juliana said, we deal with that. It's also in our paper that we wrote, and and it's also in the um, A&D paper that's out there. We have references to that in the in the back of the book. But but back to athletes, I have this issue all the time. You know, I have everyone that we coach stop exercising. And, you know, that's, you know, these people didn't exercise their whole life or whatever, and they got to be, you know, 50, 60, 100 pounds overweight. And for me to actually start them on a diet and not exercise, you know, the, the world attacks me. How dare you do that? But the point is, I, I separate the physiology of anabolism of go, go, grow from catabolism of using your stores in times of no food. This is the metabolic winter hypothesis from our first podcast. But the idea is a lot of my people, a lot of the people we see, they get to their new ideal weight. So I have a client right now, just lost 140 pounds. He's at his ideal weight. He's gonna start being physically active. Well, here's the question that comes. Well, what should I eat? Because I'm gonna start going to the gym. I'm gonna go to trainer. And then, you know, then it all starts. Now the trainer is giving him all this advice and most of it is gonna be the same chronic overnutrition that got this person to gain weight in the first place. And I tell him, don't change your diet. Don't change it at all. Because 
If you're not getting enough and you start exercising for two or three weeks and you're still eating the same exact food that you're eat, you were eating before and you lose weight, then you'll then you'll know you're using too much you know you're using too much energy. And this becomes a problem because as soon as people lose weight, they immediately jump back in. You know, hey, everybody's happy. Look at me. Look, I'm I'm I you know, gosh, you've worked so hard. I can't believe you lost all that weight. You look so good. You should live it up a bit. And what we do, and this is such a cruel thing in society, we celebrate these people's success, people like me who had problems. Juliana didn't ever have weight problems. I did. I was 85 pounds overweight. And the way we celebrate with people who have struggled with eating and struggle with being overweight is by telling them they need to live it up a little. As if eating healthful, whole food, plant-based diet is not living it up all the time. And so, you know, this idea that you automatically need to increase your food because you're exercising assumes that when you're living every day that you're eating just enough. So let me say that again. This idea that you need to increase your food when you're exercising assumes that you're eating just enough when you're living every day. And what I mean by that is, let's just make up the numbers. Let's say there's a, you, you, you're eating 2,000 calories a day. And then you start working out and you run five miles for an hour. That's 100 calories a mile approximately, right, right Matt? So that's enough. So about a five hundred. So you're gonna you're gonna be burning an extra five hundred calories. We're not trying to lose weight. We're not trying. We're just we're eating two thousand a day, and we want to burn that five hundred calories. It might be normal to say, "Hey, I'm gonna eat an extra five hundred calories," because I'm gonna be running. But but wait, what if I told you that in this particular example, let's just say you only need a thousand calories a day. You're eating two thousand calories a day, and your body is just disposing of an extra thousand calories a day because it has mechanisms to to dispose of of extra calories through producing heat. So, in other words, those extra thousand that you were eating were just waste heat. And they leave your body over the next 24 hours. This is the thermic effect of food. This is a slow uh, elevation in your resting metabolic rate. This is a shift in priority to you know you know burn glucose or alcohol or excess amino acids in the diet versus you know the fat. And so the fact of the matter is is that if that's the case, and you run an extra an extra 500 calories or an extra five miles. All you've really done is burn that extra thousand, 500 or half of those extra calories in an hour instead of over 24 hours. So in other words, this idea that we're eating just enough and if we eat a little more, we're going to gain and we're going to eat a little less, we're going to lose is clearly not the case because what everybody sees is that if they just cut their diet a little bit, they lose for a while and then they plateau. And and this is this is the explanation. It's in our oxidative priority paper, and you know it's it's down in the de in the weeds in the details. But this idea that you're eating just enough, and the body has to be able to either metabolize, store, or eliminate all the food that you swallow, because we can swallow an enormous amount of food. And the other side of that whole thing is is that at the same time is that. Um, we can only store a certain amount. The concept that all extra calories are turned to fat is just wrong. That does not happen in our body. Fat is stored as fat, amino acids, alcohol, and dietary 
carbohydrates are not stored as fat in a, in a, in a, in a large quantity at all. So that's these, this is an important disruptive part that's in the book in a more simple way, but it's so important, everybody, all excess calories aren't stored as fat. So that's Ray on how to eat or rather how not to eat during your workouts. But when it comes to those actual workouts, how do you stay focused on them? That's where this week's sponsor Aptiv comes into play. This episode of Nomad Athlete Radio is brought to you by Aptiv. Aptiv produces audio-based workouts created by certified personal trainers available through a mobile app. And what's cool about Aptiv is when you log on, you can not only choose the type of workout you want, but you can choose the type of trainer you want and their, their individual personalities. Some will like hip hop, some rock, some pop, and they all bring a different style to the workout. Even better, you can take Aptive with you anywhere you want to work out. You can use it at home, outside on the run, when you're traveling, and even on the treadmill. Aptive has classes for all fitness levels from beginner to intermediate to advanced. And with more than 2,500 workouts available on the platform and 30 plus new classes added each week, there's always a new workout to try. That's right. When you open the app, you can choose from yoga, running, strength training, elliptical, rowing, even meditation, and so much more. They even have different programs. So if you're looking for a longer term goal, like training for your first 10K or a marathon or a half marathon, or even this maternity program that breaks down the trimesters so you can stay fit and, and strong and healthy throughout your pregnancy, it's pretty cool the variety of different programs and workouts they have available. Subscriptions start at $14.99 billed monthly or $99.99 for an annual membership. For a limited time, new members get 50% off an annual membership, which is just $49.99 for the whole year of unlimited workouts. Visit aptive.com slash no meat. That's A-A-P-T-I-V dot com slash no meat. What's the implication then? Knowing that, what, what do we do differently? So if someone's starting an exercise program and they've been weight stable, you know, again, I don't use exercise to lose weight. And you can go to figure three in oxidative priority and it'll explain why that is that we don't, I don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if, you're, if you're weight stable and you want to start a exercise program, you just start exercising. You start working. If you're bonking, tell me what happens if you're bonking, Matt. What, it, what, ha what causes that? It means you're out of sugar. Glycogen. Out, of, out of glycogen, right. So you would up your starchy vegetables a little bit, you know, legumes, potatoes, grains, you know, whole grains, not sugar and sports drinks. And you would, you would, you know, go back to your exercise. I mean, because someone starting a program isn't immediately going to go to running a marathon or doing right. the kind of work you and Rich Roll do. You know, you're, you're just not going to do that. But for the average person running three to five miles, you know, they just go start running. You know, like Forrest Gump, just go run. And after about a week or two, if you find that your weight is going down, then clearly you don't you need to be eating more food. Right? Right. Okay. And 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 but we become obsessed with getting enough and people want to prevent it. So, oh, I want to eat some more just in case, just in case, just in right. case, just in case. Which is why I have so many clients coming to me that I run marathons and I'm always training. I work five I work seven days a week, you know, two hours a day at the gym. And I can't lose weight. And that's the reason, because they're overcompensating. Tell them your experience. I mean, when we first met. Oh, with my weight? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm an expert in diet and weight loss and nutrition and fitness. I was a personal trainer for 12 years. Like, that was what I did while I was in graduate school. And um, and I was working out one to two hours almost every day. Like, I love the gym. I love working out. I, I did a marathon. I trained. I ran. And But I always kind of had this extra 10 pounds that I wanted to get rid of. But, you know... I was doing what I was supposed to do and I was fueling for my workouts and, you know, eating the requisite 
how many meals a day and all that stuff and teaching the same stuff. And, you know, I was working with all sorts of clients. But um, what Ray taught me was that just what well, I went through the program and I stopped exercising, which was a big deal for me. It was actually really painful for me. And mm-hmm. um, and but I did heal from some long term overuse injuries during that period. And I lost 12 pounds in 18 days and kept it off. It's been almost a year and a half now. And that was shocking because I thought I knew everything. <laughs> and so here he got not that I thought I knew everything, but, you know, I thought I knew what I was talking about. Like I was I've been teaching this for so many years and he disrupted the way I thought about it. And it had a dramatic effect. And I, I've learned so much just on that and just separating exercise during the weight loss process was mind blowing for me. And and what just because I do want to shift to talk a little bit more about weight loss here. What what do you attribute that too? Is it that you then stopped overcompensating by eating more because you thought you needed it when you were exercising? Or is it what did it have to do with stress or something different than that? No, it was, it was, you know, I, I started using the decreased feeding window and I started using oxidative priority to my advantage. So I started learning how to combine foods. We don't like to say food combining, but it's in the book too about how to use foods that to help you go through your fat stores. It basically, it was like a way of shifting to eating less. I eat less. I'm not afraid to eat less anymore. I'm learning how to, you know, I eat like two meals a day instead. And um, it, it was just a real, it was just a real way of letting go of this fear of deficiency that I'd been so taught for 20 years on, on that was the biggest issue, especially when I had switched to a plant-based diet. At, at the highest level, it's the chronically fed state. And and what I would say, without going into all the details, because obviously we coach people through the details, but the, the, the big picture here is that example I gave. If Juliana was maintaining fi- fine on 2000, I'm just making these numbers up because the calories today per day don't really matter that much. But if she was maintaining five on two, uh, fine on 2000 calories a day, and she took the old style and just said, oh, I'm just going to drop 500 calories and meaning to support all of her exercise and she's like well why, why am i not why am i not losing weight well because she could actually drop in this example that i gave she could drop a thousand calories and still be equal and so here's the point you know if if you stop exercising and you continue to create and decrease the amount of food, at some point, you're not going to plateau. I can tell you, 24 days on a water-only fast that I did in a medically supervised water fast, I did not plateau. And I don't believe in breatharian, so I don't believe that I can photosynthesize. You know, as much as I love plants and as much chlorophyll has traversed my uh, my body, I, I certainly don't believe that I can, you know, extract energy from the sun. And so the point here is, is that at some level, everyone's going to do it. The reason I think most people don't go there is because when you're exercising, the purpose of exercise is to tear down the tissue, give it a biological stress, and through hormesis, that tissue grows back stronger. That's basic, you know, hydropathy 101, right? That's what, that's what causes us to, you know, do, you know, jump higher, swim, you know, faster and and run longer, right? But there's also and there was also a really big lesson to be learned between weight loss and weight loss weight maintenance because I had maintained my weight my entire life except for my two pregnancies. You know, and that I guess is a success in and of itself to stay the same weight. So the, I that's another thing he taught me was that there's a big difference between weight management and actually going through the weight loss process. Right. So what I was saying is is that that stress that stress is what exercise is about. Now think about it for just a second. If you're going to reduce your calories and reduce your food and reduce your nutrition in order to tap into your 
energy storage organ, the fat, if you're going to do that and you're still tearing down tissue, what are the chances that you're going to get exactly enough? In other words, you know, metabolic winter is about cool, dark, still, and scarce. It's about, you know, let's just, I know I'm using the word hibernation, but we're, we don't hibernate, but it's about the idea that your body uses stored energy and stored resources. You know, you, you know, squirrels don't run marathons. They just don't. They, 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 they move enough to mate and to find food. And that's about it. You know, they, they have some social order, but they just don't go out and just increase their activity so they can eat more nuts. They just don't do that. And we do. And so, you know, this is kind of a crazy idea. So the idea that when you're in a, a time, and this is where Juliana was, Juliana was in a program, and it was a healthy program. She was exercising. There's nothing wrong with exercise. I'm not down on it. But she was in this on this treadmill, literally, of eating and, and moving and eating and moving and eating and moving. If she would have just suddenly stopped eating, she would have had performance issues you know, there. I mean, she would have had issues. She would have torn down tissue and it wouldn't have been repaired because, you know, she's, you know, not, you know, fueling for the, for the exercise or fueling the nutrients, you know? So the, this concept that you, that we inextricably intertwine diet and exercise is a mistake. It's, it, it makes sense from a, you know, a go, go, grow perspective. I understand that, but from a weight loss perspective, to me, it makes no sense at all. Hmm. Really interesting. I've, I've heard you talk, we've talked about that before, that, that exercise, probably not necessary for weight loss, uh, but I haven't quite heard it said in that way. Right? That is that is different. I learn something new every time, and that uh, that's my nugget for this time. Um, so let's see. I want to, I really, I mean, we should wrap up pretty soon, but I, I want to talk quickly about vegan junk food. We mentioned it at the beginning. Um, you know, I think a lot of people point to that as what Juliana and I referred to at the beginning of this this interview, which was that you know this plant-based movement is exploding and it's reaching new people all the time, and we've come so far in 10 years. Um, but I've heard you, Ray, when we've talked not on an interview, but just on the phone, uh, say that you don't think this is a good thing at all, that even even for those of us who are choosing not to eat the vegan junk food, and, I, and I'll be honest, like now and then, of course, we eat some, and with the kids, it certainly makes it easier for them to eat the bean burrito if we get some of the fake cheese and throw that on there. Um, but I just, I was really struck when we talked about this and, and how, you know, kind of the outlook for the future of the plant-based movement, if 10 years from now, the, you know, large scale studies are done and, and because so many people were eating this plant-based junk food or vegan junk food might be a better word for it, um, you know, that, that we're going to say, well, the whole plant-based thing really turned out to not, not be as promising as everybody thought that it would. And it was just another fad. So can you talk a little bit more about that? And then Juliana too, I'd love to hear whatever perspective you have about, uh, about vegan junk food and, you know, is it okay in small amounts? Is it, a, is it good for the movement in any way? Or is it pretty much, uh, would we be all better off without it? Yeah. I'm going to let, I'm going to let Juliana cover this one because this is, this is the part I think that goes with my insistence with her that we just stop this idea of being, getting just enough in adequacy. And I think, you know, she's, she has been, you know, a, a somewhat lone voice in the plant-based community that's been really focused on nutrition, not, you know, the Beyond Burgers. So, Juliana, want you t tell them a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I came, I started my whole journey when I was a teenager want, doing this for the animals. Like, this started for me 
like from a vegan perspective, you know, and of course this evolved into it's a win, 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 because I clearly see that there's, there's no other diet that is more health promoting than a whole food plant-based diet. So it evolved for me, but I still care very much about the animals. I've even, you know, I've worked for a nonprofit that's, you know, to help animal rights, but I, there was such a conundrum for me to be promoting these foods. And it's such a conundrum for me because all of my friends are celebrating the fact that everything I could eat, you you know, everything you could eat, I could Mm -hmm. eat vegan because it's really exciting that there are all of these options now. And I've always referred to them as treat foods or transition foods uh, because a lot of people, you know, they have cravings for chicken or they have cravings for burgers. And, you know, I loved that part. But the problem is, I think in the long run, even for the animals, even for the ethical vegans or the people that are doing it just for the environmental or the animal reasons, this is going to be a big problem because uh, eating these foods, I'm literally having clients come to me with almost the same issues, the same health issues, you know, being obese, not being able to lose weight, uh, hypertension, high cholesterol, you know, the same problems that my meat-eating clients are coming to me with. And that's because if you look at this explosion of these foods, which could, in the short term, it seems great. You've got all these options. You're going to help animals, blah, blah, blah. But in the long term, these people are going to be sick. And if 5%, if it's only 5% of the population who is vegan or vegetarian because, you know, they care about the animals and the environment, but 95% of the population, they don't really, they're not interested in that. And those 95% of the population see that vegans and vegetarians end up being sick and not being able to thrive by eating a healthy diet and end up with the same health issues. It's not going to motivate anyone else, those 95% of people to change. And what we always talk about is this fear that, you know, in 10 years when we see the research, because now we have this great research comparing meat eaters to uh, lacto-ovo-vegetarians to ve- to vegans, and we see clear, distinct benefits of omitting the more animal products that are omitted, the healthier the population seem to be, and, and so many different types of studies. So the concern is that if we have no difference in health outcomes, no difference in mortality and all of that, because people are eating too much of these these healthy animal, I mean, unhealthy animal-free junk foods, then what's the reason for the rest of the 95% of the population? So are we going to move the the needle? You know, I think we could save more animals and humans by focusing on eating whole food plant-based. And these products are not only, you know, filled with things like saturated fat and, you know, other things that we know promote disease and sugars and oils and all that stuff, but they are these are foods that, you know, are hyper palatable and it makes people, it just easily makes people overeat. You know, we were sitting at lunch and saw on the menu a Beyond Burger uh, and they added this whatever cheese. It was like a thousand calories for a burger. You know, like that's horrible. That's not going to make anyone healthier. And and does, and does give her, give a, a sort of a hang of a, a comparative framework when Juliana talks about these studies that compare, um, you know, people who eat meat or vegetarian or vegan the classical studies the one that everybody everyone's like likes to quote now remember during that time there weren't all these vegan junk food options back then so a person who was eating vegan was eating more closely to sort of a whole food plant-based diet and the kind that juliana and i have recommended one juliana's always recommended that's why i say she's sort of an outlier but but a similar analogy is the use of statins and cholesterol. You know, it used to be that you could just look at people's diet and 
you know, make some associations between diet and cholesterol. And now we see all these new studies coming out where there is an association, but now the entire data pool is polluted by statins. And I'm not saying this isn't a for or against statin debate. I don't want to get into that. What I want to say is, is that we no longer can do a population study on cholesterol and diet because today people would be put on statins under reasonable care if they're not going to change their diet. So we've done all those studies in the past and we have information. And this is what I think, you know, this is the point that Juliana's making that just can't be um, overstated, which is, you know, t a decade from now when self-identified vegans do are doing no better on observation studies than, you know, the Western diet counterpart, you know, it's going to have a negative feedback loop for people adopting a plant-based diet for health. And if we really look back historically at the temperance movement and other ideologically um, made units where people were changing their diet or their habits based on ideology, I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just saying that we did that. They get to 2 to 4%. That's what the temperance movement was. This is where Kellogg's and Graham and all of the, the people who started, which became the vegetarian side. I have most of those historic books here, and I've read through what they were saying back there. And most of the arguments back then were the same arguments people were making today. They just knew a little bit less about nutrition, but they were making the same argument, the number of teeth, you know, the digestive tract, and all the things that they were saying. The point I'm making is, is this, is that we have the ability, and what go, going back to the question you asked about Penn, you know, Penn Gillette did not come to this because of ideology. He came to this because of his health, and he is perfectly plant-based. If you really want to see a great video, go to YouTube and search for Penn Gillette Big Think Weight Loss and watch that video because I think it's the most persuasive video for a whole food plant-based diet that I of his book, you know, Presto, people that would have never come to a vegan diet for ideology, but came to it because of their own health. And what I'm, what I, I think I'm appealing to, and I think, I, I, I hope, you know, I think Juliana's, you know, obviously been doing this a lot longer than I have been saying is, look, if you guys, if the, for the people that are listening that are ideologically vegan, if you're interested in expanding that your, what you're going And more importantly, these foods aren't just sliced potatoes with salt and oil, you know. that we're fortifying burgers with amino acids and heme iron and saturated fat so it tastes.
also be used for this. And so the ideology won't impact that. And that's what I guess. person and that person doesn't succeed then you know um they know they they um but you know can talk about about basically um our our system is set up our app and everything's set up it we do and it may be a group that we can do and these are people that are really really serious about transformation this is not a
questions. So we, you know, we can talk offline um, and and get together, or we can, you know, set up an information.